0: Not only is MIFID 2 boring, but the corporate access piece within MIFID 2 is so deeply boring that you'd have to be suffering from chronic insomnia to listen to any of this stuff.
1: You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Hi, everybody. The truth is, you love Mifid 2. You can't get enough Mifid 2. The more Mifid 2 we give you, the more Mifid 2 you want. Hey, sir. A few tickers back, we did a segment on Mifid 2, the most listened to ticker in ticker history. What? On today's show, we've got more Mifid.
0: It means a change. It means the way that business has been done in this area for decades no longer quite a part.
1: Coming up. Michael Houghton, Managing Director and Founder of London-based Corporate Access and IR Software Provider, Engage. But first, this week's IR Ticker News Update. Danaher and Wright Medical topped the winner's list at this year's US IR Magazine Awards. Each firm took home three prizes. Danaher for Best Overall IR in the Large Cap Class, Best Corporate Governance, and Best in Sector. Meanwhile, Wright Medical won Best IR for a mid-cap, Best Use of Technology and Social Media, and Best IR for Julie Tracy. Other winners at the swank black-tie affair held at Cipriani Wall Street included Salesforce.com's John Cummings, who took home the Best Investor Relations Officer for a large-cap award. William Galligan picked up the Lifetime Achievement Award – and Blackboard's Director of Investor Relations, Mark Furlong, won the Rising Star Award. Roving Ben Ashwell caught up with some of the winners. First up, Danaher's Matthew Giuginio. Uh,
2: what's the kind of secret source of your IR program? How do you run it so
0: effectively? Yeah, sure. I mean, we really just focus a lot on uh, transparency and consistency with the program. And we, we try to look at our, our sell side and buy side analysts as customers and really try to also be the voice of uh, the sixty-seven thousand associates who work in Danaher every
1: day, and be that liaison between the company and, and Wall Street. Jack in the box is Carol DiRamo, who runs a lean IR machine.
2: One is that correct? Correct.
1: Was nominated in the best IRO category.
2: So, how do you set about the start of the year? Sort of prioritization. You know, how do you assess what's important and where you spend your time? That's a great question. So I think you have to first think about what are the key messages you're trying to communicate in a year and what's the most effective way to do that. I know a lot of companies will do an analyst day every year. No matter what, that's not our style. It's a lot of energy to do those. Um, So we don't do an analyst. We did one two years ago. We may or may not do one this year, but I think more consistent communication can sometimes be more helpful. But if you want to think about what you're communicating, we've actually changed the guidance that we've given to be around those metrics, and then we've also changed our disclosures around it also. I'd say also if you have maybe new members of your management team that you want to get more exposure to with the street, plan around that.
1: Check out IRTV with Ben Ashwell for more Winner's Circle interviews. You'll find the full list of winners at irmagazine.com. Gary Davies is set to become the new CEO of the UK's IR Society, the GlaxoSmithKline IR director will take over the top job in July. He succeeds John Golifer. Investors say companies are failing to grasp the impact MIFID II will have on research coverage and corporate access. A new report shows the investment community is looking to companies to significantly step up their communications with investors in the wake of MIFID II's implementation at the beginning of this year. The findings of an optimum strategic communications survey of asset managers also suggest life sciences companies and others with more complex stories are likely to feel the biggest impact from sell-side research cutbacks. The latest Bank of America Merrill Lynch monthly investor community snapshot reveals a growing pessimistic sentiment. 74% of investors surveyed now believe the global economy is in the late cycle stage that is, possibly reaching its peak, with the next stage being some form of downturn. This is the highest level ever in the survey's 24-year history. Finally, according to the most recent IR Magazine Global Salary Report, the median North American head of IR earns a salary between 200000 and $250,000 digital editor Ben Ashwell asked legendary IR headhunter Smooch Reynolds for tips on how to calculate your market value and negotiate compensation.
2: So Smooch, to to kick us off, where do I begin when trying to understand how much my compensation should be? I think the most important starting point, Ben, is to understand the concept of marketplace value. Mm -hmm. And this is a topic I've been passionate about for more than 20 years. And marketplace value is really tied to two things, tangible technical skills to do the job, Mm -hmm. and then a category that I talk about uh, relating to intangible leadership qualities, the latter of which is the more important of the two Mm -hmm. as someone moves along in their career track uh, and becomes more senior. And I think once a candidate understands um, where their strengths and their gaps are and they start working to fill in those gaps, at that point, they can truly start focusing on the literal dollars and cents of it. Sure. Excellent. And we we often hear about the importance of of doing your research when it comes to compensation, but that can often feel a little sort of intimidating or overwhelming. Where do you begin and and what do you consider? So, you know, what are your top tips for for, uh, individuals when beginning the research process? Well, I'm a real uh, lover of data and analytics. Mm -hmm. And I think the more well-informed someone is, the more empowered they'll feel, and it will be an easier conversation to have. A lot of people aren't comfortable talking about compensation, even IROs about their own compensation. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's quite a number of surveys in the marketplace, whether they're focused uh, directly on the investor relations function or direct reports to CFOs. I mean, after all, you know, IROs are part of the finance team and they're a senior finance executive at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think also articles about compensation overall, get familiar with the terms and the language and um, getting your arms around all of that. I think people should also remember that, you know, the intangible qualities are unique to them as individuals. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's hard to put, you know, a declarative dollars and cents to that Uh, And that's why I like for them to start thinking about that part of it, too.
1: Gather more pearls of wisdom by watching the full interview on IRTV's YouTube page. Mm -hmm. Or maybe he didn't. And now, the future is here. In this second episode of our series on Mifid2, we'll once again compare expectations about a Mifid2 world with first reports of the reality. Michael Houghton has definitely planned for Mifid2. Five years ago, he founded Engage, a company set up explicitly with Mifid2 in mind provides a software platform that lets corporates and institutional investors internalize a direct corporate access capability and lets them cut out the investment bank middlemen at the heart of a regulatory clampdown on payments for so-called corporate access. I began our conversation by asking Huffton about the sorts of shifts in behavior he's detected since Mifid 2 went live at the beginning of the
0: year absolutely fascinating couple of months there has been no cliff edge there's been no massive disruption no fundamental problem um, but we are now seeing lots of little anecdotes of where behaviour is changing. So I've got a a, a few examples here but one a very large um, German investment house based in Frankfurt where on the footer of all of their emails, you send them an email and, and you'll get something back saying if this is preserved, please delete me from your list unless you, uh, um, unless we have a research agreement in place with you in the same for corporate access meetings. So we're starting to see more and more of that. Um, investment institutions refusing offers of research meetings from people they don't have agreements in place with. We had one very pertinent example of uh, an investor client of ours based in New York um, where the analyst refused an offer of a meeting from an Australian company being brought around New York by an Australian broker and instead asking for a direct meeting from the company. Um, and I thought that was particularly interesting because it illustrates the globalization and or as the regulators would call it, internationalization of you know, that you're starting to see big houses looking to globalise this solution. Um, And that is not of any stretch of the imagination universal. There will be others who are adopting different approaches, but we're starting to see more and more of that from from different markets. Um, The other thing I would point to is several big houses who have been developing internal corporate access capabilities. So some of these are now public domain, um, but people like BlackRock, uh, and fidelity uh, and T Rowe Price and others who have, been, who have recruited internal heads of corporate access. Um, I heard yesterday that Wellington were doing the same. Um, and again, that seems to be a trend, not one that's universal, but certainly one that's growing of large um, international asset managers looking to internalise this capability. Starting to see more and more of that, and the reason is very simple. Um, The Liffid 2, the corporate access, mandates that uh, there will be a price paid for meetings if they're intermediated by a Liffid firm. Mm. Um, It doesn't mandate what that price is. That's for the buy-side firm to work that out. But that simple fact that it's no longer possible for a buy-side firm to accept an intermediated meeting for free suddenly creates an incentive for people to move direct because as soon as you go direct between the institution and the corporate, you're outside of the auspices of NIFID. It no longer counts as an inducement. It's a direct meeting and there is no price payable. Um, and that that fact is, the, I think, the single most important thing of NIFID to for corporate access, um, that going direct avoids the hustle of organising all of these payments and working out what the right price is. Um, if you accept an intermediated meeting, you're perfectly entitled to do that, but you then have to go through that whole rigmarole of um, pricing, and, and the pricing um, that you need to apply is, is complicated. So
1: all this is dire news for brokers?
0: I don't think it does need to be dire news for brokers. I think, it, I think the, the, the thing I would say that it, I believe is uncontroversial and incontrovertible is that it means a change. It means the way that business has been done in this area for decades no longer quite applies. Um, brokers absolutely still have a role, um, but they need to be, they need to be paid. Um, and that's actually quite good news for brokers because for quite a long time this has been a loss-leading business. Mm. And it doesn't mean the institution has to pay. One of the very clear carve-outs um, that the regulator has confirmed is that if the issuer pays then that is fine. Um, The buy side firm can accept a meeting that's paid for by the issuer um, for free as a minor non-monetary benefit. So it's possible that um, brokers could actually create quite a powerful business case of doing more for their issuer clients and being paid a retainer, exactly as used to be the case with corporate broking in the UK market. Now, at the moment, corporate broking in the UK market still exists, but for large firms, the retainers have pretty much disappeared. So actually, there is an argument to say that Lifted to and these provisions could actually lead to certain areas and price reflation for brokers, which could be quite good use for them. So I think that that will be one thing It could be good for certain brokers in certain circumstances. It could mean more concentration. I think it undoubtedly means more direct and that is, is a trend I think that we, we see more and more from big investors and big corporates alike. Okay,
1: Uh, who who do you see as being um, ahead of the curve on this? The buy
0: side? My my response is going to be a gross generalization. But um, within that context, from what we see, I haven't seen a huge amount of evidence of the sell side wanting to jump ahead of of this curve. I think it's fair to say that although you you can construct good cases for the sell side, by and large, the sell side feel the old system worked relatively well for them and they've been reluctant. To, to adopt all of this. So we, a good example of that would be that you see um, quite prevalent is still what I call metallic bundles. Um, so pricing packages of you buy a gold research package and you get corporate access thrown in for free. And um, that's very, very common. Um, those of office from the street but the UK regulator um, has confirmed that, that that's not acceptable. Ah. That access part needs to be separately priced. So I think it's fair to say that on the whole, The sell side have been dragging their feet a bit. The buy side, um, I think it's fair to say that running into the MiFID 2 implementation date, the people underestimate just quite how much there was with MiFID 2 It's it's been this well-quoted, I I can't remember the exact number, but 10.7 million paragraphs or something of text. It's been a huge (laughs) deal, and the buy side focus was on, um, it was particularly on, Product distribution, it was on trade reporting, it was on research. The things like corporate access just didn't get enough headspace. Um, and then, so that really, that, that's where the change is happening now. Um, They've they got their trade reporting and their research questions settled going into January, and then it was like, right, let's come up for air and look at the rest. So. The big change I've seen in the first two months of this year is that suddenly the corporate access question has come into focus for big institutions. Um, so southside side dragging their feet a bit, buy-side really starting to look at it. And then on the corporate side, um, I think it's fair to say we see nothing short of a transformation. So the middle of last year, corporates really didn't know what to think and didn't really care because they weren't directly regulated. They didn't see a great deal of evidence of change. And um, we, in our own feedback, when we were asking corporates, we were getting scores of about 40 to 45% saying they thought that corporate access would move to a direct model post MIFID 2. Um, but then in q 417 the feedback that we got back from 51 Corporates and institutions was that they, they saw an 85% score rate that they, they would be moving towards direct channels. So I would say that the corporate awareness has changed significantly as we've gone through. Um, and we now have lots of little anecdotes um, of corporates having issues organizing roadshows and meetings. So I would I would say that the vast majority of companies would now tell you on um, that yes, they've you know, they're not seeing a wholesale change. They're not finding it impossible to organize roadshows, but they will all be able to quote a few examples of institutions who refused meetings, institutions who've come to them directly asking for directed allocations um, and change around the edges that they all feel is, is likely
1: to grow. So it's the buy side reaching out directly to select corporates.
0: Yes, exactly. So most companies, most corporates would tell you. But they are now seeing um, they've seen a big growth in the number of institutional investors approaching them directly and saying, when you come in the road, please can we have a meeting with you? Mm. Um, you know, when you're coming on a roadshow, but can we have that meeting outside the auspices of the main roadshow? Um so what what a lot of companies tell us is that um, and I'm plucking numbers out of the air here, that they might be doing, they might historically have done a, a two-day roadshow with, say, 20 firms. And they're now finding that the broker that they would have used might be able to do half of those meetings, and the other half are being arranged directly um, by the corporate in response to direct requests coming in from the institution. And that, just tying it all back, that, that, is, um, that explains my cliff edge comment um, that what we're not seeing is wholesale refusals, but you're starting to see some refusals around the edges, which in aggregates are um, adding up to a significant minority of, of, of the activity that's going on. I presume some companies are handling this better than others. Um, it really varies. There will be some companies that aren't prepared for this at all. You know, smaller companies who haven't necessarily got a lot of IR resource, um don't have the capacity to handle direct requests the themselves very easily. Um, they're finding it a surprise and a bit of a pain. There are others um, that are very well prepared that were expecting this, have a lot of IR resource. In fact, I heard this week of three FTSE 100 companies who are looking to develop their own internal corporate access capability. And um, these are all companies that are quite well resourced to so have the ability to do that. So again, it's very much horses for courses. It varies. But I would say that, you know, whereas a year ago, we would meet companies who would say, they rarely, if ever, got direct requests from investors. Nowadays, you find um, that if you were to do a straw poll, almost every um, head of IR would be telling you that they are getting more direct requests from coming in from investors, and they're seeing more of a need to to have to to handle some of this activity themselves. So I had one more anecdote. I had a German company, a mid-cap company, 6 billion euro market cap, um, that told me that they felt it was no longer possible um, to give a bold I- in, um investment bank a roadshow day in London and be able to guarantee that that one bank would be able to cover all of the market because it, they could only offer meetings in many cases to, to their own signed-up clients. And so that's the interesting out from the corporate point of view. How do you then fill in the gaps? Does it suddenly mean we need to use overlapping brokers? Do you do more of it yourselves? Do you use independence? Um, and you end up with a whole mesh of different sort of options and permutations that, that can
1: be used here. You like then uh, the overall the effect of method two on investor relations. Uh, as long as people can convince their boss they need more money, maybe more personnel, they'll succeed.
0: Yes, I mean I, I, in my view, has been, and I would still very much say that I think this is a this is a good thing for IR. Um, it means that the IR department becomes more important, um, and your conclusion is absolutely right. They will need more resource. They will need more budget. They'll need to do more and more themselves. But essentially, what this is, is taking back in-house a lot of processes that have been outsourced to sell-side firms for decades. And by doing them in-house, the, the corporate gets more control, and they can give Random reporting to boards, you know exactly who they're meeting and why, and, and what's going on. Feedback is coming direct. You know, there, there are lots of other benefits that flow from a direct approach, um, but it does mean it does mean more resource, um, and that's that's really where if there's controversy, um, I think it's more about that. It's between some companies who will tell you they think this is a good thing, it gives them you know, makes their role important, and other companies are saying well. Good. Um, doing very well, but I'm not getting any more resources. So what do I do?
1: That's the big issue. Then you have to have management and the board on board to get those resources. Otherwise, no one will pay attention to you.
0: That's that, yes, that's right. And and here we go right to the crux of the matter of really does does the board and management see IR as a core function and and, and, a, and a critical part of the business or not? Um, and companies vary in that. Some are uh, some see it as absolutely critical and they fund it well, and, and others you know, see it as just an afterthought. Um, so you know, that, that's where there's the challenge still for, for corporates. And and there is also still, there is a gap, I would say, under Miffy under 2, between expectations of who should pay for all of this. So six months ago, when we asked investors whether they should pay the corporate actors or the corporate, the investor view was absolutely overwhelming. They didn't think they should pay. They thought the the corporate should pay. And the rationale there being that if you are a listed company, it is part and parcel of the very function of being a listed company that you engage with your shareholders and that this is a cost of doing business for the corporate. Um, So the investors were, were really resistant to the idea that they should pay for corporate access. Now you, you translate that back to the corporate side, and again there's quite a lot of resistance because corporates would be saying, okay, fine, I should maybe go and see my big shareholders, but I often don't even know if these guys are shareholders, and if they're shareholders today, who's to say they're going to be shareholders tomorrow? And so you have this big gap between each side, and what we see now is that that gap is closing. So you continue to see very, very high scores when we do our feedback on on each side, saying they don't think they should bear all the cost. But suddenly, we now see, um, in Q4 of last year, 65% of investors said, well, they they thought that if if the costs were were shared appropriately between each side, this service is a benefit for each side, then that would be fair. Um, And about 50% of corporates say the same. So I think we, we are coming much closer now to a consensus, which is that, Neither one side should be paying all of the costs of engaging with the
1: other. Okay, that's where one area of compromise will be. Um, you mentioned at the top that you were perhaps a bit surprised at the, um, the rapid extent of globalization and the uh, pace of big firms taking up the, the corporate access bit in house. Uh, so, any other major surprises then as we've moved forward? Um, I did not
0: anticipate that um, people would wait until the Mifid 2 enforced days and then suddenly wake up in January and say, hey, what are we going to do about corporate access? You know, I thought they would have been all over this and have done it before the rules came into force, not afterwards. Um, But I was wrong. Most firms did not put things in place before January, but they are now looking at it. You know, the way I would summarize that is it looks now as if the extent of the change is greater, will be greater than I thought it would be But it is definitely taking longer. Um, It has been delayed compared to what what, the timetable that I thought would would pan
1: out. And and Um, partly because corporates, for their part of that triangle, just just didn't get it, didn't get what their job would be like after MIFID II, in a MIFID II world.
0: I think the way I would maybe describe that is um, there was a significant degree of confusion Mm. going into the, the end of last year as to exactly what the rules meant because you had people like me saying that they meant one thing. You had the sell side saying they meant something quite different and neither the buy side nor the corporates really knew quite what to think. Um, now, since then, we've seen clarification come from the likes of regulators as to what that means. Um, clarification that the onus it falls on the buy side firm to make their mind up so they they can't abdicate this much to the sell side. They've got to do They've got to decide for themselves what they think these rules mean. So it, it, it has taken longer, but it's mainly taken longer because I think of genuine confusion that's been out there and just simply the size of the legislation. People had not been able to get their heads around all of it all at once. And so it's come in phases. But now that people are addressing it, we're starting to see that the change that they're implementing to their businesses is deeper and broader than I think we would... That we would reasonably have expected
1: to see. Um, I, I've been saying we are at uh, an inflection point in capital markets. Um, I think passive investors like Larry Fink want direct contact with companies, want them to have a real social purpose. That zeitgeist plays into this new direct contact MIFID world.
0: Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And all of these themes are intertwined. Um, and we yeah, and, and another thing in that area, we act for more and more big passive investors. Um, yeah. And part of that, I'm, I'm fond of saying that you know what we've been witnessing is, is the, the death of passive fund management. And I, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, and what I mean by that is passive has become so large and so successful and uh, that it is, it is simply no longer morally acceptable for passive funds to say, well, we own a quarter of the market and we don't care how they act. Um, so big passive investors increasingly feel the pressure to be acting as proper stewards of the companies that they own. Um, and that is a key part of what's behind Larry Fink's letter, direct engagement, and so on and so forth. You can't just ignore, you can't hold a third of the equity of a company and ignore how they behave. You're,
1: you're saying passive investors are going to get more active, acting like activist funds?
0: I, 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 I think it's a little bit more, it's a bit more subtle than that. Um, it's not that they're becoming, it's not that passive are becoming activist, but what they are is they. they big. I, I, I think of it more as a rebranding um, from passive to index, that they are passive in their investment strategy, that they are increasingly active in um, their engagement with the companies that they own. And part of the way, if a, if a big passive guy was here, the way they would describe it is in saying that, look, they are the ultimate long term owner. Um, of that company. You know, they are an owner in perpetuity. So they care how that company performs. They care that it it is um, mindful of its responsibilities to the environment and so on and so forth because if they're not, then they are ultimately going to lose their license to operate. And, I think it, and it's, lots of people have been starting to talk about this. You know, Vanguard has been talking about this, BlackRock and um, several of the other big passive guys as well. And there's been some quite interesting... Academic research on the subject as well, and the the very basics are that if you own if you own the entire index, if you own the whole of the s and p five hundred, what we know is that bad governance has a significant impact on performance rather than good governance. you know it's it's avoiding those horrible companies that really go wrong. And so from a passive perspective where they have to own everything, if they can actively engage, with the management teams of the companies that they own, and so try and avoid those governance pitfalls by making those companies improve, then you improve the performance of the index as a whole. Um, and so I think that there is this, this growing awareness that actually good governance and good stewardship and good engagement actually translates into better outcomes for end investors, um, as well as fulfilling their obligations to society.
1: And let's just nail that on the head. What's the passive connection to MIFID II?
0: The connection with MIFID is that all of these themes ultimately stem from this, uh, um, or lead back to the exact same point, which is more and more direct engagement between corporates and institutions. Mm. So it's, all, it's, it's lots of strands of the same theme, which lead to more institutions wanting to engage directly with the companies that they own. If it is mandating it, but society pressures and all of these other things lead to the same conclusions.
1: That's funny. I used to think I used to think that passive investing would be like was the nail in the coffin would put IR out of business. If everyone was passive, then why even have IR? And now you're saying, well, no.
0: Yeah, and and actually, some of the IR guys who I you know will say that some of the best the best meetings they have are with the big passives.
1: Okay, so to wrap up, um, how do you see the IR job evolving in a post-MIFID environment?
0: Um, I think the IR job is going to look, um, it's going to look similar, um, but these guys are going to be more important. And suddenly, well, maybe let me answer that with an anecdote. One senior head of IR who we work for said to me a couple of years ago, yeah, I absolutely love this whole trend because what it will mean is I can prove to my CEO and my board that I am not just a bank carrier. Um, I am actually here as the company's eyes, ears and mouth in the marketplace. Um, yeah, they are receiving direct information from from the investors and giving the back to them and reporting that to the board. So in 12 months from now, IR guys, are going to be busier. They are going to have more resource and they're going to need more resource. That it's going to become increasingly apparent that a good IR team is, is a really absolutely critical part of the senior management um, and, and more structural of the
1: company. And that's all for this week's Ticker Podcast. We've set up a special group for MIFID 2 in IR Space. That's our new and totally free social network and resource site. The Tigger Podcast's All-Niff-It-All-The-Time Deep Dive takes a break next week. We'll be hearing from EQS's Paulina Brown on how you can build a better IR website. Thanks for listening. In Montreal, I'm Jeff Cossette.
2: You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.